0: Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. Lots of the stories we're looking at in this series are about researchers working really closely with people who care about the things they study. There are benefits all round to that. It improves university work and keeps it relevant. And collaborators get access to expert skills and, sometimes, answers to some of the biggest questions in their lives. But independence can be a precious resource for researchers with a controversial cause, and they have it in common with journalists doing the same thing. Sometimes, both professions are told that to campaign, to care, makes them biased and unprofessional. Still, they both need what the other can offer, and nowhere is that more true than with the science of climate change. In 2015, Dr Christoph Maglade and Professor Paul Eakins published a paper they hoped would change the way we thought about keeping global warming under 2 degrees Celsius. And at the same time, Damien Carrington, the environment editor of The Guardian, was steering that newspaper's landmark Keep It In The Ground campaign. They all had the same aim, halting investment and exploitation of new sources of fossil fuel I spoke to them about how they negotiated that balancing act of needing each other and needing their own voice to give their work its best chance. Paul, Christoph, thank you very much for speaking to me. I wanted to start by asking about how you came to be doing this
1: research at all. I I started at UCL um, as a PhD student um, and really the, the topic was very, very broad whenever I began. It was Looking just at what is the role of fossil fuels in a climate constrained world, many parts of the research world in particular, the research focuses on the alternatives on things like clean electricity and and hydrogen and biofuels. And there hasn't always been a huge amount of work going on, the existing oil, gas Mm. and coal assets. And so as I was working through my PhD under Paul's guidance, um, we saw this as being an area where um, it seemed like we had a lot of the, the the numbers that were needed. We had a lot of the tools that were needed um, to answer the question of if the world is serious about tackling climate change. And at the time, the the, the temperature limit that people had in mind was how do we limit the temperature rise to two degrees, and um, what would that mean for the fossil fuel producers? And so we were able to use the the model that we developed as part of the PhD and um, to to really dig into the, those details. Look at um, who does well? Who does not so well? And how much needs to be left in the ground if we are, if we as a world are serious about about limiting the temperature rise to to that two degree limit?
2: Um, at the time that Christoph started, which was sort of early in the 2010s, I can't remember 2011, 2012, perhaps. The UK Energy Research Centre had been going since 2004. If I remember rightly, Christoph's work was the only work in the UK Energy Research Centre on fossil fuels. And everything else was around either energy efficiency or around uh, zero carbon alternatives uh, to fossil fuels. And everyone just assumed that we would crack on with energy efficiency and we would crack on with uh, clean energy. And then uh, there was this question left hanging in the air. Well, what are the implications of that for fossil fuels? So so we were really the only people who were asking that question, and, and thank heaven that um, you know Christoph was was up to um, getting uh, a, a really robust answer. In practical terms, is that
0: literally how much fossil fuel reserve needs to stay in which hole <laughs> in the ground, basically? I mean, in, in layperson's terms.
1: Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, that's that's correct. The whenever people talk about limiting the temperature rise to a certain level, Um, the conversation very quickly becomes about carbon budgets. How much remaining CO2 can we emit while limiting the temperature rise to 2 degrees or to 1.5 degrees? And it was known whenever we did this, before we did this research, that the remaining carbon budget was a lot smaller than the amount of CO2 that would be emitted if the world combusted all of the fossil fuel reserves. If you burned all of the coal reserves, all of the gas reserves, and all of the oil reserves, you would exceed that budget um, massively. It was at least a factor of three times too big. But what wasn't quite so clear at that stage, before we did this research, was what's the distribution between oil, gas, and coal? Um, coal is the. There's reserves that are largest for coal, um, but coal's also in many places of the energy system, the easiest fuel to replace. And so what we wanted to do was with this, that sort of knowledge for coal and knowing how you can replace oil um, with electric cars and natural gas with with alternatives, um, find out, well, how much of the oil, gas, and coal individually um, will need to remain in the ground if we are to limit to two degrees, and then go one stage further and say, well, if we can only use um, 20% of the, uh, of the, Coal, um, I think it was even less than that. I think it's only ten percent of the coal who owns the coal that um, is is used in that scenario, um, and similarly for for oil, because until you know which of those which of the fuels um, can be used um, while being compatible with with two degrees, um, what we very often found when in conversations was a, a company or a country would say, "Well, we know there's a limited carbon budget, but that carbon budget is ours." We can we can extract our mm. own um, reserves, and that won't exceed the the global carbon budget. And you could say you asked every single country or every single company the same question, and they would say the same thing. And of course, again, when you add it up, then the carbon budget is is massively exceeded. So what we wanted to do was to kind of draw a line in the sand, give a give some numbers to people, and say, well, if you are working towards two degrees, in an optimal sense, the world is working collectively. And the cheapest possible way of achieving two degrees, who who leaves their stuff in the ground and, and who produces their, their stuff.
2: It set a baseline as to who could produce what. And what that then enables you to say is when countries say that they want to produce more than that, and we had this quite explicitly in relation to Canadian oil sands, um, which are huge. And so the question then is to the Canadians, well, if you're going to produce more oil sands at a higher cost than elsewhere, who is going to produce less oil um, in order to stay within the carbon budget but you immediately get into these very difficult conversations but absolutely essential conversations uh, as to you know what oil and gas is going to be left in the ground and what isn't it it therefore uh, tightens the political tension if you like which is absolutely essential
3: hi i'm damian carrington and i am environment editor at the guardian newspaper Back in 2015, uh, the editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, um, who had already announced he was leaving, wanted to do one big last campaign and decided to do it around uh, climate change and fossil fuels. And uh, we thought at that time uh, the best thing to sort of focus our resources and attention on was um, fossil fuel divestment, so uh, trying to get uh, companies, universities, all sorts of institutions to uh, take their investment away from uh, fossil fuels because of this uh, incredibly powerful and fast growing science at that time showing that uh, you know we just had too much uh, fossil fuels already and we couldn't afford to burn even the, even the stuff we had already.
0: I find it quite surprising that actually this was the first work of its kind being done, at least in the UK, because you know, the oil and gas, the fossil fuels lobby, is so immensely powerful and sophisticated. So, exploring the alternatives is very important. But what, why do you think people wanted to focus so much more on alternative energy, um, you know, renewables, downstream stuff, perhaps, rather than this question of how do we limit what we extract in the first place?
1: I think some of the the results of the the work themselves, the the, the high level results, they wouldn't have been a massive surprise to some people in the oil and gas industry, because they would have known this from their own modelling exercises. But as Paul said, the modelling exercises they'd been carrying out um, used proprietary data sets, which cost millions and millions um, to, to get access to. And also, if you're a private company, of course, they will an oil and gas company, you will have your, your own knowledge, which um, only you would know. Um, but it's only whenever kind of the, we were able to do that work in terms of Giving the best estimates to characterize what the state of play is today, in terms of how much exists and how much it costs to extract, and and um, what the the flow rates are. Once we've done all of that work with the with the model, then you can start to ask these interesting questions. And what we wanted to do as part of the paper was then to put that out there, as I, as I said, to really kind of use this as a bit of a challenge to. Countries and to companies to, to say well if you think some of these numbers are are wrong or you want to produce more then what what does that mean for the others we've we've seen in recent years increasing amount of emphasis put on well, how do we how do we deal with the legacy assets how do we deal with the the existing infrastructure um, and how do we start to reduce that in a way that's compatible with the with the climate targets
2: yes and and, and I think we mustn't underestimate the the real power. Uh, of peer-reviewed literature, especially when it comes out in a high-profile journal like Nature, which is where this paper Mm -hmm. appeared. Because um, as Christoph said, uh, uh, certainly people in the oil and gas industry would not have been surprised by the results. Uh, And indeed, you, you could have arrived at a general perception of the results by doing much, much less work just on easily available data. Um, but that wouldn't have been published in the peer review literature. And if the companies concerned had published it themselves, then people wouldn't really believe it because they wouldn't be able to document the data, where they'd got it from, uh, and the assumptions that, 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 that they were making, because all those things are, are fairly commercial, uh, mm-hmm. commercially confidential. But when you uh, can, can get that data from publicly available sources, uh, triangulate it with other publicly available sources, uh, document it all, document the assumptions that you're making and justify their reasonableness and then go through peer review and then get it published, immediately you've got numbers in the public domain that people realise um, you know, are worth more than they would be if uh, they were simply coming from a single source, um, especially when it was uh, a commercial source that, that had, had an interest in them.
3: So we were really lucky with uh, the timing because uh, early in 2015 um, this uh, paper by uh, Paul Eakins and Christoph Maglade uh, came out um, which did this enormous uh, bit of research to work out how much of the world's existing reserves of fossil fuels could be burnt whilst keeping below two degrees centigrade of of global heating which at that time was the um, target and so this you know was published in a really uh, top journal called nature and uh, was a really solid piece of science it was just really striking it was showing that virtually All coal or at least 80% of it um, had to stay in the ground um, and large chunks of uh, oil and gas and they weren't talking about stuff that you know might be there or was being thinking about uh, or was being explored for Um, this was reserves that had already been identified and often were sort of cited on company books as being an asset to those companies so even seven years ago thanks uh, in large part to this uh, paper from UCL um, we knew that we couldn't even afford to burn the stuff we already knew about, let alone continue to explore.
0: Listening to you talk, something which I think is contrary to what a lot of people think of when they think of doing research and how research happens and what good quality research looks like, is that you are extremely aware of the power of publishing. peer-reviewed literature, as you just said, and that that was an intervention into something ongoing and dynamic and really, really urgent. And that you you did that in a way that you knew was going
2: to be a provocation, in a way. Would that be fair? Well, absolutely. And it was intended to be a provocation. I mean, as, as Christoph said, um, uh, it, it was a challenge. So when you do a piece of research like this, you say, Okay, these are the data. We know they're not perfect. There will be, you know, there's lots of uncertainty about a lot of these data. These are the assumptions. The world is very uncertain. These assumptions may well not work out uh, in the way that we've said. But on the basis of this data and these assumptions, these are the results you get, that, that we we get. If you don't like them, then please correct the data, give us better data, or make more reasonable assumptions, more plausible assumptions. And then, because we would by that stage have a model which could interpret those, we would plug the different data in and the different assumptions in, and we would get different answers. But again, uh, they too would be subject to challenge and correction. So yes, it is very much a provocation. And of course, a provocation in a very controversial topic, where there's lots of money at stake, and therefore, it got that much more attention than it might otherwise have got.
1: I mean, Rosie, coming to your question on on the the importance of getting this published in a in a high-profile journal, um, this conversation is reminding me that that was a pretty torturous process um, to get that to get that through. I'm, I mean, I think it was the best part of a year full-time work just for just on this paper. I mean, when you see it now, it's you know two thousand words. Um, and and a couple of graphs. It doesn't seem like so much time dedicated would, would go just into that. Um, every word was poured over, every um every sentence, every figure, every number that, that appears, um, going through that really rigorous peer peer review process improved the paper massively. But it did require that um the the I would say the the support of, of people like Paul and, and support from the from the UCL team to be able to have that that confidence, well let's keep going with this. Um there are, of course, other projects which need, um, which could be getting worked on, but this is an important one. Um, we know it can, it can make a bit of a splash whenever it comes out. So to have that support, I think was absolutely vital to be able to, to 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 be able to produce something like this.
0: I think that's a really interesting point from the point of view of how research is done and funded, and then how it goes on to have the kind of impact that your research has had. Is that there's doing the research, and then there's getting getting it out there. I think it's maybe underestimated how much work it is, actually, um, if you're not a researcher. How, how tricky that can be, but also how much thought goes into it.
2: Uh, that's absolutely true for most papers. I think that was less necessary in this case than it, it might have been in other cases, because um, the, the nature of the paper and the substance of the paper meant that it was it was big news. And so, unlike most scientific work, when it was published in the journal, there were a number of um, big newspapers that were already interested. They'd done their work before it came out, uh, during the embargo period, and they were really ready to go when it came out. And we mustn't forget that we were in the run-up to the Paris Climate Conference, so climate was already um reasonably high on the on the public agenda and then suddenly here's this paper that says for the first time this is the amount of coal gas and oil that we can produce and according to our model this is where it should be produced
0: who picks it up in in the press who who was talking about it in the media and what happened as a result of that
2: i remember the guardian
1: um was very keen on it because i think it was just at the beginning when they were they were developing their own keep it in the ground campaign I think they they had been thinking of developing something along those lines um, in parallel to this paper, but then this paper clearly gave the scientific backing for for um, the, the campaign they wanted to, to launch.
3: We did a whole bunch of things. Um, obviously at the core of it was a lot of reporting. Um, some of that was scientific um, in terms of you know what the situation was with climate and the amounts of fossil fuels that were needed. Um, we commissioned lots of um, Uh, comic pieces Um, I mean we we, we sort of spent a lot of time on the creative side of it as well we had our designers making uh, the pages look really good and uh, when we published uh, to to launch the campaign in the paper there was a whole wraparound on the outside cover which was beautifully designed Um, we also looked at at the investment side uh, in particular at the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, Wellcome Trust who who did have significant um, investments in fossil fuels at that time
1: Um, but then once it kind of got picked up by the UK media, there was then quite a big um, second wave um, from the international media. That's, that was the, you know, the week of the launch. Um, requests then kept coming in for further comments to talk on radio programs, on TV programs. If you don't have the, the support to be able to, to go and speak to media and speak to anyone who's asking questions on the paper... Um, then the dissemination will just kind of start to fall off. Um, but as we saw it got such big attention at the beginning. Um, it was it was a bit easier to make that uh, make the case for why we should why we should keep pushing it and, and make sure that we were responding to all of these these questions and, and uh, comments as they were as they were coming in.
2: Doing research is one thing and demands a specific set of skills. But talking about the results of complex research to a general audience, which is mainly the audiences that we were talking about, Uh, talking to uh, is a completely different set of skills. Uh, A lot of the questions that we got were extremely detailed. I mean, I remember some some really pretty hostile questioning from Canada because of the uh, implications for the Canadian oil sands and uh, the people there who didn't like these results at all and were very keen both to understand them. And then if they thought they weren't robust, to challenge them.
1: Getting into the com- complex technical details is, is very important for some audiences and for others it will just completely um, go over the heads. Um, even speaking with policymakers within the UK you can immediately see what what, what messages are uh, resonating with them and then you could you know you'll know well for next time when I'm speaking with a policymaker or speaking with, with a certain audience I'll, I'll know what sorts of things to, to say to, 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 to keep their attention.
3: I would say that scientific research is the cornerstone of of my reporting, um, in particular, Um, and that's partly because I had a scientific background, I did a PhD in geology and some postdocs, I guess I was uh, leaning in that direction anyway, and certainly for a long time, uh, writing and reporting on the environment uh, really was about um, the science. Half of my reporting is based on scientific papers published in peer-reviewed journals um, because that feels like something kind of really um, solid. The way science works is a bit difficult to sort of... Make it then jump into the public domain. I don't know how many scientific papers you've read, but they're all you know written in the third person, and they're full of jargon, and they're all so careful, you know, because nobody ever wants to overclaim anything, and they're sort of cautious and all that kind of thing. So, um, sort of trying to translate uh, that into something appropriate for um uh, you know members of the public our readers um without dumbing down absolutely not doing that but but making it accessible in terms of the language and just trying to sort of really distill the essence in a in a um accessible fashion um i think is you know the sort of core part of the job and um of course you know we we hope it uh well we know in some cases um more often not that it does influence the the sort of public debate and how uh, policies change and governments decide things um, because, you know, politicians, business leaders, all sorts of people uh, read our coverage, not just uh, regular members of the public. What, what I'd say to scientists is um, don't be shy about your work. I know in academic circles it's not often seen as um, a good thing to be promoting or even self-promoting your work. But um, the work that scientists do in many cases is really important in the world. And um, if you are able to work with journalists, then um, you can get it to a much, much bigger audience. And uh, all that hard work that you've done will be uh, much more relevant uh, in the world. Um, also don't be afraid of journalists. I know sometimes you know we've got a pretty bad reputation and uh, in some cases that's certainly deserved but um, you know with a little bit of effort and a little bit of um, co- co- or collaboration with your uh, you know, institutions uh, comms or PR team um, they 'll know who you know the good people to go to are and maybe who the ones not to go to are um, and then the last thing I'd say is um, a really practical thing which is um, if you've got data. Provide spreadsheets if you've got you know maps or images, provide those. Even if you've got videos, if that's relevant to your work, provide those because you know most uh, news reporting is done online now, and uh, we like to have those things just to help uh, research really stand out.
0: I'd love to ask a bit about how your relationships with campaigners of all stripes, whether that was the Guardian and their campaign, but also other organisations that picked up on your findings. How that evolved and how you work with them. I'm thinking particularly 350.org.
2: I mean, to be honest, uh, our relations with those kinds of people were pretty positive because generally they liked the message. Um, they they hadn't, uh, I think, probably thought in as much detail about how much fossil fuel was going to stay in the, was going to have to stay in the ground, consistent with the climate targets. And as soon as they saw the numbers, uh, their reaction. Like the reaction of most people was, good heavens! I, I mean, I think a much more a much more difficult audience for us uh, was the fossil fuel industry, because we were really challenging their entire strategic positioning at the time. And their strategic positioning was that um, the world is going to need fossil fuels for a very very long time. We're going to go on producing them uh, at scale, you know, more or less into the indefinite future. And when I think back to those days, 2015 pre Paris. Pre any kind of talk of net zero, or any of that stuff, yeah, it was a it was a huge challenge and required uh, a, a real um, learning on the part of uh, all sorts of people, both campaigners, activists uh, on the climate issue, but also the fossil fuel industry. So when we had Uh, events with them, which we did. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, Daniel or Christoph in the lion's den, really, Um, you know, having to uh, having to defend a point of view, uh, and a piece of scientific analysis, which was not really very welcome.
0: That's really interesting, though, that you did hold those events, because I have encountered people from campaigning organisations, organisations that campaign on exactly this issue, who make it almost a point of principle not to engage those actors, not to engage those stakeholders. um, Because, they are you know, an existential threat of some kind as they see it. But you took a different tack to that. And what did you
2: say to them? Well, we, we were very keen to stress that uh, if they wanted, they, there was a very positive role for them in the future. There are all sorts of skills and technologies which they were expert in, which other people were not expert in, which were going to be extremely useful in, um, in, in the low carbon world, towards which we needed to be moving.
3: I'm not sure I'd say we were sort of working with the campaigners. We were sort of ploughing the same furrow, if you know what I mean. But um, um, from memory, I don't think we worked that directly with them. Um, But there was a big uh, divestment campaign uh, going on, led in principle by an organisation called 350.org, and uh, one of the founders, Bill McKibben, there. Um, so I think it was it was a little bit symbiotic, you know, in a way we were trying to do our job, which is uh, reporting what's going on in the world, uh, finding out information that sometimes people don't want to be found out, and in in a way that was almost kind of ammunition uh, for the um, uh, divestment campaigners. We didn't uh, really bring the campaigners kind of inside are reporting because i don't think that would have been appropriate but i can tell you a little story actually which i think is interesting so i went to um a climate conference quite a big one in paris uh in 2015 at that time and did, did, did a lunchtime panel um which was hosted by a journalist um, and, and a couple of other people on the panel and um the journalist was saying isn't this you know inappropriate for a newspaper uh to be sort of campaigning in this way isn't your job to be um you yeah, know, more objective and, and, and sort of stand back a bit. Who's American, I think there's more of a culture of that in American journalism. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, I said my piece and said I, I thought we were still doing our job responsibly and still, you know, centering it on scientific or other information um but at the end he asked this audience it was quite big actually probably a couple hundred people there, mostly scientists i think as well as others um did they think it was appropriate that we you know taken this route and done this kind of campaign um and there was an overwhelming vote in favor of it which uh, gratified me very much
0: how would you say that investor or commercial behavior has changed as a result of uh, your findings as a result of this
1: of, of the campaigns that grew out of them it was financial institutions were well, one of the the audiences who were very keen to understand what the what the paper said and what the research meant for them, um, because for them, if there are very large quantities of oil, gas, and coal that can't produced, be produced, that means that there's a financial loss there for somebody, and they wanted to make sure that it wasn't them who who incurred that loss. Um, in terms of how it, it changed their behavior and and actions. It's very hard to, to point to one piece of, of work that would uh, that has changed their views, but you have seen a real evolution in financial organisations' attitude towards climate change and addressing and understanding the risks from climate change in terms of climate change damages, but also the risks and opportunities for the those financial institutions um, in addressing climate change. Um, so... When if you look at a lot of the, the, the bank's financial actors now, pretty much all of them will have a a net zero target. Um, some have put much more thought into it than, than others, but all of them will be thinking about the sorts of topics that were raised in the paper.
3: So I think the thing we were most pleased with with the Keep It In The Ground campaign was the um, boost it gave to the um, fossil fuel divestment uh, uh, process, and uh, certainly within you know, a fairly short space of time, a year or two after that, I think something like $7 trillion of assets under management had committed to um, divest for fossil fuels. And um, you know the financial world is a really powerful lever for making change in the world, because um, you know, all businesses and companies need investment to, to do what they want to do. Um, so I think the fact that you know, we felt we shifted the dial in that area.
0: How are you uh, taking this forward in your work today? I mean, you've—I mean, you obviously, Christoph, have moved on to past as new. How does it? How is this work still um, a part of what you do now? And and the same question to Paul as well.
1: How did you evolve this work? Just last year, for example, we put together at the IEA um, a net zero roadmap. So this was looking at um, what would need to happen if the world wants to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 which is roughly speaking when we need to achieve uh, zero emissions if we want to limit the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. It was included in the Paris Agreement and it was reaffirmed in the, in the Glasgow Pact. And in that net zero roadmap, again, one of the big findings that came out of that and one that really grabbed a lot of attention was the result that if the world is serious about moving towards net zero emissions in 2050, there's no need for investment into new oil and gas fields. So it's it's sort of continuing the spirit of the, the, the paper that, that Paul and I put together because it's, it's commenting on the same topic. Um, the actual conclusions of the, the net zero map are, I think are even stronger because the, 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 the climate
2: constraint is even more stringent. Um, and of course we at UCL are doing, uh, are doing our bit too. We still have the model um, with a different research team. Uh, we published uh, a paper again in Nature uh, earlier this year on um, uh, a 1.5 degree target, because the work with Christoph was looking at a two degree target, because in 2015 that was the international aspiration. Well, because uh, climate change is clearly much more serious than was thought to be the case then, um, we repeated that work for a 1.5 degree target. Not surprisingly, that means that even more, of the uh, oil and gas needs to be left uh, in the ground and so that's an even more challenging message.
3: So in 2018 the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, published a special report on uh, a new target of 1.5 degrees centigrade. And uh, the reason they did that was because the science has shown that uh, even at 1.5 degrees of uh, global heating. The impacts were going to be really, really bad around the world for millions or billions of people. And so the UN process then moved towards uh, having a target of 1.5 rather than uh, 2 degrees. So having been really struck by this work that was back uh, done back in 2015 by Paul and Christoph on 2 degrees, I was wondering, well, what, what, would, what would that same research look like if the target had been 1.5 rather than 2? Because it presumably would have meant that uh, even more of the world's fossil fuel reserves would need to be uh, kept in the ground Um, another factor was of course you know some years had gone past and so some of that had already been burnt so the 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 available budget the the space we had left was also shrinking so I got in touch with Paul and said well yeah what do you think could you do an update Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, thankfully he um, was able to do that with a bunch of colleagues um, at uh, at UCL and that came out just ahead um, in the September, I think, ahead of the mm. um, COP26, which was hosted by uh, the UK in Glasgow. So, again, a really uh, impactful time. That new paper on the
2: 1.5 degrees um, got a lot of coverage. I think because so much of the basic robustness of the model and the approach that we were taking was established with the 2-degree paper, the 1.5-degree paper was... was um, a much easier piece of work in some ways. You know, one of the things that I'm pleased about is that, on the basis of that kind of publication, um, the UCL National UK Energy Model uh, is now the energy model that uh, is used by the government, uh, the business of the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, and obviously for governments to take on the work of other 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 organisations, institutions, um, is quite an achievement.
0: And that seems like a good and positive note to finish on. Um, uh, Thank you very much, Paul and Christoph, for talking to me. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Eleanor Robson about the modern fight to protect the ancient ruins of Nimrud in Iraq, and why ISIS are part of a long tradition of people who have damaged that city to gain control over its history. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Professor Paul Eakins, Dr Christoph Mcglade, and Damien Carrington, our guests, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise. Through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.